Welcome to Crown and Crozier, the podcast on church, state, and faithful citizenship. I'm your host, Patrick Brown. For this episode, we turn our attention to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. No doubt you've heard a lot about the political forces and players involved, but what may be less familiar is the very complex, centuries-long religious and historical backdrop against which the war is unfolding. Joining us to help unpackage these dimensions of the current conflict is Dr. Anatoly Babinski. Dr. Babinski is a research fellow at the Institute of Church History at the Ukrainian Catholic University in Lviv, Ukraine. In the last few weeks, as a result of the Russian invasion, he's been forced to teach classes online, with the campus now serving as a refugee camp. Dr. Babinski is also the Ukrainian correspondent for the American online Catholic news service, The Pillar. Our conversation touches on numerous topics. The rich and complicated tapestry of ecclesiological and liturgical traditions that underpin the Christian character of Ukraine, the historical relationships and tensions between those traditions and Orthodox brethren in Russia, whether Ukrainian national identity is actually a thing, reflections on the leadership of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, and the outlook for Ukraine's future amidst the fog of war. We're blessed and very grateful that our guest was able to join us from the safe haven in the western part of Ukraine, where he and his family had fled to, and were staying at the time of our recording. There are two swords, and the question is which sword is superior, the spiritual sword or the temporal sword? And without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. I die His Majesty's good servant at God's first. Welcome to another episode of Crown and Crozier. I'm your host, Patrick Brown. Delighted to welcome our guest, Anatoly Babinski. Anatoly, thanks so much for joining us. Nice to meet you. Glory to Jesus Christ. Amen. Our podcast is, is only about a year old, and we like to celebrate milestones along the way. Today is a bit of a somber milestone. Uh, this is actually the first time we're interviewing a guest who's living in a war zone. So we thank you very much for taking the time, not just out of your schedule, but given all the circumstances that are underway in your native land uh, with the invasion by your Russian neighbor. Uh, it's, a, it's a real humbling blessing and joy to welcome you today. To start us off, perhaps you could tell us a bit about yourself and your work at Ukrainian Catholic University. Yes, I'm 42 years old, uh, and I'm working at the Ukraine Catholic University. Uh, I have a PhD in theology. I'm a church historian, uh, and I'm teaching two courses uh, about the religious life of Ukrainian diaspora and uh, also the religious life of Ukraine in the global historical context. We're really looking forward to drawing on your expertise for purposes of, of this conversation. I have to admit, a much more pressing question on my mind is, how are you doing? How is your family doing? And what is life like these days for you? Um, it's a really hard question. We are now in a small city, Kolomea, in the far west of Ukraine. We moved uh, to my parents' house, and we are living here, uh, my wife, my children, and uh, we also have a, a family of refugees here in our house. Uh, they escaped from Kyiv a month ago and they are living with us now. It was a little bit horrible during the first days. I think that it was 
No, it was very hard to explain to children what is happening, uh, why we are hearing uh, these alarms and uh, sirens uh, every hour. So, um, but we don't hear explosions here in, in Kolomea. It's quite safe here. But people are coming to our city from the eastern Ukraine. We have a lot of refugees. We have a lot of displaced persons. And I and my, and my wife, we also volunteering for the local uh, Caritas International here in Kolomea. And we met a lot of such people that came from eastern Ukraine. And they told us very horrible stories, how they managed to escape. Uh, some of them spent weeks uh, in their basements. Some of them lost everything, houses. They, they have no place to return. It's, it's very hard to imagine what they went through during those weeks. May I ask, to the extent that you're comfortable, is there a certain story or is there a certain person or group of people that you've met who've been fleeing the violence that has really stuck with you? Um, I heard a lot of such stories now. Yes, but uh, there were people from Borodyanka, the outskirts of Kiev. Uh, I think that a few days ago, uh, the whole world have seen those photos from Bucha, from Bucha massacre. And I spoke with people who left Borodyanka. It's a neighbor city from near Bucha. And they, uh, they, they told us about the, the, the bodies, dead bodies on the streets. Uh, they, they, uh, they told us about the, the, the bombing of their houses, uh, how, how it was uh, happening. So, you know, most of them, they, they can't speak now. I think that in a few years or in a few months, they, they will start to, to speak more and more. Uh, today, they, they have such a fear in their eyes uh, and they only want to be in a safe and quiet place. They don't, they don't want to talk a lot. Yeah, and, and that's, uh, it's, it's difficult for us here, particularly in North America, to fathom such a thing. And we can only imagine what it's like, uh, the situation on the ground. Difficult to make sense of, of events and moments like this. We're, we're going to try our best during this conversation to make sense of some of the bigger picture. Certainly, one of our objectives for today is is just trying to get a a better understanding of some of the context, historical and political, yes, but also spiritual and religious for the current situation, for the invasion, and and what it will mean going forward. Some of the, the best work that I've come across in my own reading as I've tried to foster a better understanding of the situation in Ukraine is your contributions to The Pillar. The Pillar has been a, a wonderful new service that's come on the scene in the last year. Uh, and it's been a real pleasure reading the work that you've been contributing as the Ukrainian correspondent, uh, giving an on-the-ground snapshot, uh, but also providing some of that bigger picture. It seems like you really can't understand the larger context of what's happening without understanding the religious context. And that's a theme that you've been emphasizing in your writing. So to start us off, perhaps just tell us a little bit about the Christian identity and character of Ukraine. It seems that there's a very rich, very broad Christian mosaic in Ukraine. And if you could speak to that a little bit more, that would be wonderful. 
Yeah, you know, before the uh, Kievan Rus or this ancient medieval state accepted the Christianity as a state religion, there were a lot of tribes. Uh, and when the king or prince Vladimir, Vladimir or Vladimir accepted the Christianity as a state religion, so after the Christianization of, of those tribes, a new nation or new people emerged. So I think that we can speak that the Christianity is in the core of the identity of Ukrainian nation. But Ukrainian Christianity is very mosaic, as you told in your question, because we have a whole variety of different, different Christian denominations. We have big Orthodox church. We have, actually, we have two Orthodox churches. One is Otocephalus and one is uh, under the jurisdiction of Moscow Patriarchate. We have a Ukrainian Greco-Catholic Church or Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, which is the biggest Eastern Catholic Church. We have a quite big Roman Catholic community in Ukraine. We have a lot of Protestant denominations in Ukraine. They are quite small, but they are very active in, in, in Ukrainian political and social life. We have a Muslim community because a part of Ukraine uh, have a lot of Muslims like Crimean Tatars, or we also have a Muslim communities in the East. So we have a Jewish community. So religious life is, is very, very mosaic uh, in Ukraine. But when we are talking about the religious aspect of this war, we should speak about the orthodoxy and also about the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, because uh, when Russia started this war, in his speech on the February 21st, Putin mentioned that he thought that Ukrainian government tried to destroy an Ukrainian Orthodox Church of Moscow Patriarchate. And it was quite astonishing, I think, for him and for other Russian politicians and also for the uh, representatives of Moscow Patriarchate that on the first day of the invasion, the Metropolitan Onufri of Moscow Patriarchate in Ukraine. So he criticized Putin and he said that he committed a kind's crime, like he wanted to kill his brother. So it was very astonishing even for some Ukrainians here because uh, we know Metropolitan Onufri as very pro-Russian bishop and he always was very loyal to Russian state and to Moscow Patriarchate. And that's a, an important point to emphasize. From what I understand, there is that the largest branch of the Orthodox Church in Ukraine has historically been under the authority or the influence of the Patriarch in Moscow. So for the Ukrainian representative of that branch of the Orthodox Church to openly criticize the actions of the Russian neighbors, that's a big deal, right? That's, yes, that's, that's, yes. That's a pretty significant event. The history of the Orthodoxy in Ukraine is quite complicated because from the start, the Kievan Metropolia or this church province, ecclesiastical province, with a center in Kiev, was under the jurisdiction of the Patriarch of Constantinople. So this ecclesiastical body was divided into Kievan part and Moscow part in the 15th century. 
and uh, it happened only after the Council of Florence, because the Metropolitan of Kiev, Isidore, who was of Greek origin, but he was a Metropolitan uh, of Kiev, because before the 15th century, most of the Metropolitans were of Greek origin on our lands. So he was of Greek origin, but he was a Metropolitan in Kiev, and he went to the Council of Ferrara Florence, and he signed the Union of Florence, and when he went back, he was greeted in Kiev, and this part of this Kievan Metropolia, uh, they accepted the Union, but when he went to Moscow, Moscow rejected the Union on Florence. And after that, Patriarch of Constantinople, together with the Pope, they divided this ancient Kievan Metropolita, Metropolia in two parts. Moscow, uh, one part with the, cent- with the center in Moscow, and the other one, the capital, remained Kiev of this Metropolia. So Moscow rejected the, the Council of Florence. So after that, those uh, ecclesiastical bodies, they existed separately. And uh, Kievan Metropolia was under the jurisdiction, still was under the jurisdiction of Patriarch of Constantinople until the, the year 1686, when at that time, central and eastern part of Ukraine uh, was under the authority of Moscow Tsar. So because it became a part of Russia or Moscovia at that time, because there was no such country as Russia at that time. Uh, so then the Moscow Patriarchate, they claimed their authority under the uh, Metropolitan of Kiev. So we can speak that the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of Moscow Patriarchate traced their roots to, uh, to that ancient metropolia, but they changed their jurisdiction only in 17th century. So, but at the beginning of 20th century, a Ukrainian autocephalous movement emerged within the Orthodox Church in central Ukraine and eastern Ukraine. They proclaimed the autocephaly of their church, but independence, church independence, they proclaimed it, but it was rejected, rejected by Moscow. And only after the collapse of the Soviet Union, they, they again proclaimed the autocephaly, this autocephalous movement. Moscow didn't want to, to recognize it. And only uh, in 2019, they received a Thomas about the autocephaly of this new church, which is called Orthodox Church of Ukraine. If we are talking about the who is a bigger or smaller church, due to the recent polls in Ukraine, the majority of Orthodox in Ukraine, they claim that they, they declare that they belong to this autocephalous church, Orthodox Church of Ukraine. But they have only 7,000 parishes. The Ukrainian Orthodox Church of Moscow Patriarchate, they have 12,000 parishes. But uh, only a minority of Ukrainian Orthodox declare that they belong to the Moscow Patriarchate. So it's hard to grasp which church is bigger now, because uh, if we will concentrate only on the parishes, so the Moscow Patriarchate is bigger, but when we take into consideration polls, sociological polls, so we see that the majority of Orthodox in Ukraine, they belong to Orthodox Church of Ukraine. Uh, so uh, just for everybody who's keeping keeping score at home, 
within the the Orthodox community in Ukraine, one segment that traces its origins back many centuries and has had a, a strong direct relationship uh, with the patriarchy in Moscow. Yes. More recently, at the be- at the beginning of the 20th century, an independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church began to form. So that's arguably the, the younger brother of the Orthodox community in Ukraine. Can you speak a little bit more to the history of the Catholic presence in Ukraine? Yeah, uh, we have around 10% of Catholics in Ukraine. Uh, the majority of them are Eastern Catholics, like 9% and 1% they belong to the Roman Catholic Church in Ukraine. So, as I told before, the Ukrainian Orthodox Metropolia accepted the Union of Florence, uh, but it was a short-lived union, as you know from church history. But this idea of unity between Kiev and Rome was still alive during the next decades. It was it was still alive until a year uh, until the 16th century. So, and in 1596, the Metropolitan, the Orthodox Metropolitan of Kiev together with the majority of bishops, they accepted a new union, but it was a local union, not a global. Uh, so they accepted a union with the Church of Rome, with the Catholic Church, uh, in well-known uh, episode of history, a union of Brest. So, and uh, a part of uh, Orthodox people were under the jurisdiction of those bishops, they also accepted this union. So we, Ukrainian Greek Catholics, we trace our history from that union of Brest. So at that time, uh, that church covered the territory of today, central Ukraine, western Ukraine, Belarusia, and a part of Lithuania. So it was a quite big, big church. But when Russia occupied the territory of today, central Ukraine and Belarusia, they destroyed the structure of this church this Uniate Church on the territories of central Ukraine and Belarusia. Uh, so first they destroyed it in Belarusia and then in, uh, uh, in, on the territories of today's Ukraine and Poland. So it was during the 19th century. On those territories which were under the authority of Habsburg Empire in Austro-Hungary, uh, so this church existed. It was uh, Metropolia of Lviv. Today, the, the majority of parishes of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church are concentrated in Western Ukraine, because this part of Ukraine was a part of Austro-Hungary. I can, I can say that, yes, we have only 10% of, of Ukrainian population, but our church is quite influential in our society, because the heads of our church, they, they were trusted by many Ukrainians who are not Greek Catholics or even Catholics. That's all fascinating, and I think that's a good point where we can we can shift a little bit from the historical context into current events, because some of the things that really jumped out from your description just now, whether it's the the Greek Catholics in Ukraine being able to trace uh, some of their juridical origins back to uh, the Treaty of Brest, for example, centuries ago, and then your Orthodox brethren who have typically enjoyed affinity and affiliation uh, with 
their neighbors in Russia, them being able to trace uh, a lot of their juridical origins back many centuries as well. I mean, it seems like there's a very long, rich history here. And one of the, the themes that has come up in the context of the, the current invasion by Russia are questions, skepticism around the national identity of Ukraine. Is Ukraine actually a country? Does it actually have its own national identity? And yet here you are talking about history that stretches back centuries and centuries, setting aside the matter of Ukraine's having their own language. In, in the current context of, of the invasion and the Russians in particular, that some of the rationale they've been invoking to justify their invasion ha has been this assertion of, well, Ukraine's not really a country. It doesn't have its own national identity. How would you speak to that and how would you counter that? You know, they are playing on the similarity between two words that in Ukrainian sounds, sound differently. Because when we are speaking about Russia uh, and about Kiev and Rus, both terms sound similarly. Uh, I, I know that for the English-speaking world, there is no difference between Rus or ancient Rus and uh, between today Russia. But in Ukrainian language, we have different words for, for those entities. Because when we are talking about the inhabitants of ancient Rus, we used to call them Rusine or Rutinians in English. F for Russians, all those inhabitants of ancient Rus were Russians. You must understand that Russia accepted their name Russia for their country. They named their country as Russia only in 18th century. It was under the Peter the Great when the name was changed because before it was Moscovia or Muscovia. And the Peter the Great, he changed the name of the country and he, because he wanted to trace the origin of his empire back to the 10th century, back to the this ancient Rus. So I have lived in, in, uh, in Canada and I know that for English-speaking world, it's a little bit hard to grasp this difference in languages because Russian is Russian and they use it to ancient Rus or to uh, contemporary Russia. And when Russia started this war, you know, Putin likes history very much, but he's not a historian. He's playing with those terms and uh, if they are like interchangeable. He always speaks about one nation, that there was always one nation starting from the 10th century, and this nation is a Russian nation. And the Ukrainians aren't a nation, they are only an ethnic group. Yes, they have uh, another language a little bit, they have their Roman culture, but uh, they don't have a subjectivity. They, they have no right to have their own country because they are Russians. But from the Ukrainian point of view, because it sounds very horrible, <laughs> because that means that he wants just to destroy us, to destroy our culture, to destroy our language. And they, you know, during the 19th century, they forbidden to publish books in Ukrainian. Uh, and it's uh, quite funny because 
At the same time, he is talking that there is no Ukrainian language, and at the same time, they forbidden to publish books in that language. So uh, there is no logic in that. I'm not sure that I answered your question, but... You know, some of the arguments that I've heard listening to different media sources, there's one well-known commentator in the U.S., for example, her name is Candace Owens. She recently said, Ukraine wasn't a thing until 1989. I've heard other, I've heard other people say, while Ukraine was an invention of Lenin when the Soviet Union was established and Ukraine was made into its own Soviet Republic. When you hear those types of arguments, what do you say in response? And, and maybe even a more general question is, where do those arguments break down for you in the way that you think of your own identity as a Ukrainian? What, what does it mean to you to be Ukrainian? You know, I heard about those arguments and I, um, I understand that from from the other side of the ocean, it might look like that, that Ukraine was at the scene before 1989. But you must understand that Ukrainians struggled for independence in 17th century and then in 19th century, and they proclaimed an independence after the First World War. It was before Lenin and communists occupied Ukraine it's very interesting that Putin, uh, when he said that phrase that Lenin invented Ukraine, it wasn't his own idea. His favorite philosopher is Ivan Ilyin. Ivan Ilyin was a Russian fascist, and you can find this idea in his books. Uh, he was very anti-communist. He was also anti-Ukrainian, very anti-Ukrainian. And he wrote in his books uh, that... Lenin invented Ukraine. I also heard that, you know, in Russian discourse, you can find the idea that Austri Austrians invented Ukrainians. And when I hear this idea, you know, I imagine that uh, officers or, uh, you know, general staff, Austrian general staff, they are sitting writing thousands of Ukrainian folk songs. Because Ukrainians struggle for independence not just the last 30 years, 30 years uh, because uh, they struggled for independence also in 17th century during the uprising against Poles. They struggled at the beginning of the 20th century, as I told you before. So we have a, a very rich culture. We have our own language. We have our own political culture because Ukraine always wanted to be a, a European state Democracy means for us a lot. We can say this about Russians. And you, you, you saw that and you know that during last 20 years, we have uh, had two uprisings, two revolutions, Orange Revolution and then Revolution of Dignity, because we cannot accept autoc autocracy. And when we see, when Ukrainians see that some presidents or politicians are trying to build a Ukraine as a little Russia with autocracy, without democracy. We, we can't accept this. We, we, can't, we don't want to live in such country. We, we have a different political cultures in Ukraine and Russia. But U Ukraine is not only for Ukrainians, ethnic Ukrainians. What we are seeing now, this is an emergence of Ukrainian political nations nation. Because we have a lot of soldiers, uh, we have a lot of 
people, representatives of our society, of our among our politicians, who are not ethnic Ukrainians. A lot, a lot of people they they uh, they speak Russian language. We have a lot of Tatars among our politicians. We have uh, even Koreans. So, I think that the main the main the main feature of being Ukrainian now is a different political culture. Not only culture as such, but also a political different political culture from Russia. I think that's a really good segue into the the next theme that I wanted to make sure to explore with you because it's been a dominant theme in your contributions to the pillar. And, and this is the, the motivating ideology or principle uh, for Mr. Putin, not just in terms of the, inv- the recent invasion of Ukraine, but his worldview more broadly. And you've written about this concept, the, the Ruski Mir, I, I hope I'm pronouncing that somewhat correctly, uh, but this concept of of the Russian world or the Russian space. You've spoken to that a little bit already, but I'm hoping you can speak to that a, a little bit more, this, this notion of, of the Ruski Mir and how, how we can't understand what's happening now with Mr. Putin's actions if we don't understand that concept. This concept emerged after the collapse of the Soviet Union because of the vacuum, ideological vacuum in Russian society. Because, you know, communism was an ideology. When it collapsed, there was a vacuum. And they tried to fill it with some ideas. Uh, And a starting point was the fact that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russian authorities, they always said that because of the collapse of the Soviet Union, around 25 millions of Russians found themselves beyond the borders of Russia. And they tried to reintegrate those people back to to the Russian cultural space. During the 90s, it was only a matter of intellectuals, this Ruski Mir. But after the, I think that at the beginning of the 21st centuries, Putin started to use this phrase in his official speeches. And the main feature of this Ruski Mir was the Russian language. He said that everybody who speaks Russian language in the world, not only in in the neighbor states, uh, in the former Soviet republics, but also in the whole world, everybody who speaks or like uh, likes Russian language, they belong to this Ruski Mir, Russian world. The ne- the next step, they also because you understand that there are a lot of Russian-speaking people in, in Russia who are not ethnically Russians. They are Buryats or other, other ethnical groups. So uh, on the first stage, they didn't use this religious uh, aspect of this Russian world because there are a lot of Muslims in Russia, so uh, the orthodoxy wasn't a, a case for them. So, But starting from... It started when the Petr Kirill was elected, after the death of the Petr Alexei I, the second. So uh, Petr Kirill was elected as a head of the Russian Orthodox Church, and he started to promote this uh, idea of the Russian world. And his main focus was concentrated on the former uh, Soviet republics of Ukraine and Belarusia, uh, and he used this idea that. Uh, Ukrainian 
uh, nation, uh, Ukrainians, not nation for him, uh, Ukrainians, Belarusians and Russians, uh, they emerged from the one baptismal font in Kyiv in the year 988. So, and he started to promote this idea that we all, Russians, Belarusians and Ukrainians, we all belong to one nation, which as a god is in three persons, then he said that this great Russian nation uh, has exists in three persons as Belarusians, Russians and Ukrainians. The main idea which was behind this was a reintegration of those parts of the former Soviet Union and also of Russian Empire. So they, they tried to, to reintegrate all territories of, of the former empire. They used a soft power, and the Russian Orthodox Church played this role of soft power. But uh, what we see now, I think that they realized that they cannot reintegrate former Soviet Union or Soviet Empire or Russian Empire without force, without uh, military action. I think that they realized that this scenario that worked with Belarusia, because Belarusia is actually occupied by Russian forces now. So they realized that without using a force, they cannot bring back Ukraine to, to their fault. That is happening now. May I ask, and to make it very simple for us here in this part of the world in North America, when we've been examining the invasion and the context that preceded it, there's been a lot of emphasis and focus, for example, on NATO expansion. And NATO expansion is referenced by many people as one of the, the main factors leading up to this conflict and invasion. There's also some people who say that, well, you know, the situation domestically in Russia is so bad that part of the purpose for the invasion was for Mr. Putin to almost make it a distraction and to rally the Russian people around this particular cause and, and to tap into that sense of patriotism. From where you sit and based on all of your, your research and knowledge, this idea of the Ruski Mir, when you compare it to NATO expansion and issues surrounding that, how central is this idea of the Ruski Mir and the appetite on the part of Mr. Putin and the Moscow Patriarch to achieve it? How central is that to the current conflict? This war didn't start 40 days ago. I know that in their rhetoric, they always used the NATO threat because they wanted to mobilize their society. And you know that during the Soviet period, they always used that NATO, NATO threat uh, to mobilize uh, Soviet society. But this war started eight years ago, and Ukraine wasn't a part of NATO. Because when they annexed Crimea, and when they started their proxy war in Donbass, Ukraine wasn't part of NATO. So I can't accept this, that the war started because of NATO. They need some propaganda. They need, time, they, they, they need to mobilize their own society. I don't know exactly about the situation in Russia, if it is bad or good now economically. I don't know if 
he really wants to distract the society from their internal problems. I'm not a, a specialist in Russia, but but he uses this net NATO threat to mobilize and to justify and to justify before the eyes of the of his society. But but it was just a just an argument without any ground. In our remaining time, there there are a couple of questions I want to make sure we get to. The first is in relation to the current president of Ukraine, uh, Mr. Zelensky. What was your impression and the general impression on the part of your fellow Catholics and perhaps Christians in Ukraine when he was elected or perhaps when he was campaigning? What what was your sense of his, his background, his qualifications, his strengths at that time? And... Has your impression of him changed at all uh, over the last month in terms of how he's managed the current crisis? Um, personally, I, I, I'm not a fan of Mr. Zelensky and I wasn't a fan of him because uh, he wasn't a professional politician. He's a comedian and he has no background of being a, a skilled, a skilled uh, politician or governor. You know, he's of Jewish origin, uh, but he's a, a secular man, as we say, a non-practicing Jew. That's very interesting because during the last 10 years, one of our prime ministers uh, was a Jew. Now we have a president, a Jew, and Mr. Putin is talking about denazification of Ukraine. So Ukrainians, there are a lot of Jews among Ukrainians. <laughs> Uh, as a political nation, I'm, I'm talking about the Ukrainian political nation, so not ethnic Ukrainians. So we have we have nothing against Jews in Ukraine. We had prime minister a Jew, and now we have a president a Jew. Zelensky is a he's not practicing Jew, and uh, I think that a positive thing when he was elected was that he he declared that he will keep a distance from different religions and from different churches. Because when we are talking about our presidents before Zelensky, every president favored these or that church. When we are talking about Yushchenko, he favored the Cephalus church. Yanukovych, uh, he was a member uh, of the Church of the Moscow Patriarchate, and he supported this church very much. Then was Poroshenko, and he also supported this not the Cephalus Church, Orthodox Church of Ukraine, but Ukrainian religious situation is very mosaic, as we talked at the beginning of our conversation. And we need to keep a religious peace. And I think that the president who is who keeps distance from this or that church is a good, you know, guarantor for for that peace. So. In, from this point of view, Zelensky is a very good president because he shows support to each church and not particularly to that one or to this one. So I think that his presidency has this positive feature when we compare this presidency with some previous presidents. But I changed my mind now when the war started about him because he showed himself as a really brave man. You know, he could escape uh, from our country, and there was a 
I think that the Great Britain proposed him to escape. And uh, as far as I know, also, uh, the United States, they proposed him to escape because I think that nobody in the world believed that we can survive. You know, when the our ambassador to Germany visited some German politician on the first day of the invasion, and that politician told our ambassador that, you know, everything will end up in a few hours. And today we have a 40 second day of the war. So I changed my mind because he showed himself as a brave man. And I think that he he united, he united uh, our nation du- during this period. And may I ask, it's very difficult to tell. I've really only heard Mr. Zelensky speak. I've, I've listened to some of his recent addresses to the Canadian Parliament, to the United States Congress. When he's speaking to the Ukrainian people, even before the invasion, but mostly over the last 40 days, does he appeal to the sensibilities and the beliefs of what is largely a Christian nation? Or does he, as you kind of described it, does he largely set that aside and just appeal more largely to the political nation of Ukraine? He uses some phrases from the religious vocabulary from time to time. But I, I can say that he appeals to Christianity or to any other um, religion during his speeches. He, he uses such words like God, uh, but just in general, just in general. But, but I think that he understands the power of religion. That's why he invited Pope Francis. He understands that such figures like Pope Francis or Patriarch Bartholomew of Constantinople can help in our situation, that their presence uh, in Ukraine might uh, help to end this war. And we are waiting for the visit of Pope Francis. Uh, Now, as far as I know, this invitation is on the table and uh, they are considering in, in the Vatican about the possibility of such visit. That's very encouraging to hear. And certainly we, we hope that a visit of that nature can bear some, some real fruit and contribute to the peace. You spoke a little bit now to what you believe ha- has been general good success on the part of President Zelensky in unifying the Ukrainian nation. What do you see when you look forward in terms of the best result that Ukraine can likely achieve when it comes to ending this war? and Do you see perhaps a a blessing in disguise in terms of greater unity among the Ukrainian people, greater unity in in a country that has had and wrestled with many divisions uh, in recent decades? It's hard to talk about the future when you have a war. But I think that if we can uh, stop this war uh, and to go back to the to the situation which was before uh, February 24, that will be a good result. We understand that we can't reintegrate the territories of Crimea and Donbass by any military action, and we never didn't want to do that, to do this. We understood that we can reintegrate and to uh, bring back our territories and our people 
back to Ukraine only by diplomatic uh, negotiations. So I think that the best result would be a, a status quo which was before February 24. I'm not sure that Russia will agree and the Russian president will agree uh, mm. with, with such results. But when we are talking about the future of Ukrainian political nation, you know, we had a lot of social diseases in our society, a corruption. It was a really uh, horrible thing in our post-Soviet society. And I see that today there is a more understanding in our society that uh, we need to, to heal our social diseases if we want to live a better life in the future, after the war, it will end, of course. But we will need to build a new, more healthy society. And I think that the role of the churches, of churches in Ukraine, is, is very, you know, great. It, it will be a very, very great in this area because we need, we need to, to build a, a really good moral foundation for our, for our society, for this new Ukraine. We need, you know, I always remember this story of Jews when they left Egypt, but before they get to the Palestine, to, to this, this holy land, there was a, a Mount Sinai uh, where they received Ten Commandments. And for me, this is a sign that we cannot escape from this slavery, from this Soviet Soviet past, which is, you know, under our skin. We cannot escape from this slavery without Ten Commandments. And I think that this is a, a, a great task for us as a society and for us as a Christians, Jews or Muslims in Ukraine. That's, that's beautifully said. Um... Yeah, sorry, you're just taking my breath away. That's, uh, that, that's a very a beautiful description in terms of the, the, the attempt to, to flee slavery and along the way, before you reach the promised land, you have to wander in the desert for a little bit. Yes, and you need Ten Commandments. And, and, and you need a guide. You, you, need, you need the law. Anatoly, I'm certainly aware of different organizations that are providing assistance and relief to the people of Ukraine, non-governmental organizations, organizations affiliated with the church. For people in Canada and America who want to help you and the people in Ukraine, what are some of the best ways we can do that? Uh, I think that the best way is to help the Caritas International. Uh, the Caritas International works very hard here in Ukraine. They have uh, uh, their branches in all our regions. Uh, some of them were uh, evacuated from the eastern Ukraine, but they work very hard uh, and they have a, a wide net of their offices in different different cities and towns. Wonderful. Well, we'll make sure to include a link to that organization in the notes for this show. Uh, and to conclude, Anatolia, I just want to say thank you so much again, particularly given uh, the circumstances you and your family are in, to join us. This has, been, this has been very enlightening, very moving, and we just want you to know we, we wish many blessings upon you, your family, 
and the people of Ukraine. May God keep you safe and may there be peace that emerges at the end of the tunnel uh, very soon. Our, our prayers are with you and we wish you we wish you and your compatriots all the best at this time. God bless. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts and help us to reach more listeners by leaving us a rating or referring us to a friend. If you'd like to partner with us in the delivery of this podcast, head on over to our website at crownandcrozier.com and click the heart button in the top right-hand corner to learn more about making a one-time or monthly donation. We're sincerely grateful for you listening in and we look forward to providing you with future episodes on church, state, and faithful citizenship. Until then, God bless.